Hello and welcome to Hacked Off in today's episode. Um, it's the 1st of September as I record this, so it's time for a month in review. Now, anybody who listened to the last month in review uh, will possibly remember the fact that I was, was very, very frustrated last month and all of the major news articles that I was looking at were just ransomware. Always, always just ransomware. Um, this month, a few different things have happened that are worth mentioning. I'll talk about Tesla and Slack in a second. Um, that there is ransomware in the news, of course. There's always ransomware in the news, but there's some other stuff to talk about, so that's kind of cool. Um, if you are here for the month in review purely to see which company this month has been hit by ransomware, like I said, that has happened. A good example here might be the US liquor firm Brown Foreman getting hit. Now, um, you might not know Brown Foreman by the, the group name, uh, but they're the company behind brands such as Jack Daniels. Standard modern ransomware tactics of breaking in, stealing some files, encrypting data in place and asking for a ransom. So there is ransomware in the news, but something a little bit more interesting this month. For those that haven't seen the detail yet, um, Tesla was... Uh, a planned attack against Tesla was was foiled, which is which is interesting. Um, they were targeted by a supposed ransomware attack, but managed to avoid it. the The story uh, starts with an attempted social engineering of a Tesla employee to induce uh, malicious software into Tesla's network. The story broke as the U.S. Justice Department released a complaint about a malware attack uh, that had been prevented in Sparks, Nevada which is one of the locations of a Tesla factory. Um, Elon Musk also tweeted that the attack was was a pretty serious attack. Um, now, the malware itself is is said to be a fairly typical ransomware attack aimed to uh, exfiltrate data, encrypt files, demand a monetary ransom. So nothing particularly interesting there, though. But the, the, the interesting part is is the involvement of the, the Tesla employee. Now, now, I mentioned earlier, I, I used the term social engineering. Um, possibly stretching that term some people's eyes um the employee was offered a bribe um allegedly a, a bribe of a million dollars that's what the the u.s justice department's complaint said of course this is cybersecurity, so literally nothing is new and this isn't the first time that a major company has had employees bribed as part of an attack a uh, good example of that would be the AT&T breach in which employees were paid to perform actions to disclose information to install software in the network that kind of thing but in, in this particular case, uh, an employee of Tesla was offered a million dollars as a part of that attack. And I think the reason that this is important to highlight in the month of review, it not only because you know Tesla's a major company and this is an interesting thing that's happened, but a, a lot of companies consider social engineering or consider uh, the risk of like the human element of security that their staff only insofar as like phishing emails and things like that. A lot of companies test phishing response by sending test emails and tracking how many people click the link or how many people interact with the, the email, that kind of thing. But how do you test for the risk of staff members being bribed and, and other actions? I'll group those under social engineering. Um, some people might might disagree with that because it's, it's not quite the same thing that we think of when we think social engineering. But um, Really, I'm just trying to categorize, you know, that the human risk, the human element to security. Uh, and so I'm going to include it within this category. But um, how how do you test your organization against those kinds of risks? Well, 
one way that you could do that would be to perform an assumed breach exercise. So uh, this would be instead of worrying about the specific action, you know, a member of staff being bribed, a member of staff being malicious in nature, perhaps being disgruntled, um, but just looking at what happens after that action and how can we uh, test an organization's defenses against that kind of thing. So this assumed breach exercise that I mentioned earlier, we're in the realm of red teaming here. Uh, and red teaming sometimes is, is considered just like a single thing. But really what I'm talking about here is um, an organization could get a, a red teamer or, or a team of uh, red team specialists to come in and follow through the actions that would take place if a member of staff was doing something malicious. So this could be they're disgruntled, it could be they're bribed, it, it doesn't necessarily matter. But set up a foothold machine, so uh, an example compromised staff machine, or give the red teamer uh, credentials or give them uh, code execution on a, a device. So we have that, that starting point, we have that foothold. And then see how far they can go that way you can test your organization's technical restrictions to see uh, how restricted the red teamer would be in terms of privilege escalation, lateral movement, those kinds of things. We can also test the organization's responsive capabilities to, to such an attack in a realistic way. Um, it really doesn't matter to some degree whether it's a successful out-of-band phishing, a bribe, a disgruntled employee, or, or what, you can still test these things in a, in a safe and controlled manner. And this is one of the things, when you get to the, the extremes of, of security testing, um, you, you are going to get to the point where you, you can't easily test it. And of course, you're going to get to the point where the, the risk differs greatly depending on the organization, uh, either by impact or at least by likelihood. What if I uh, threatened a member of staff with, with physical violence if they don't perform an action? Some organizations, that might be a risk to, to them and their employees and other organizations, it, it might not really be or it might be very, very, very unlikely. Um, but you can test through these things. If a uh, legitimate staff credential was utilized, if a legitimate staff device was utilized, then how effectively uh, would your defensive measures be that technical restrictions or responsive capability? prevent such an attack. In the case of the foiled Tesla attack, the person charged in the complaint is, is said within the complaint to have um, contacted an employee, met them in person to discuss the attack, uh, and even provided the employee with a burner phone. The, the reason that I mention this is, like I say, a lot of organizations consider phishing just within um, their kind of realm, their, their sphere of control. So they consider phishing just so far as that uh, staff members' work email address. Or of course, I could uh, contact a member of staff out of band. I could contact a member of staff uh, over Facebook or LinkedIn or Twitter or some medium like that. I could meet them in person in some instances. That that could be as simple as uh, you know, meeting them at an event or a networking event or something like that. Perhaps that particular risk is low right now because of the, the COVID situation, but uh, as things develop, as things change, as events start to go back to being uh, in-person events, or as uh, events start to take actions to increase networking at virtual events, allowing uh, delegates to chat to each other, that kind of thing, you could strike up a conversation with the intention of finding out where somebody works and then, and then targeting them. So phishing isn't just clicking links in emails, and phishing isn't just, uh, you know, email attachments. You know, ransomware is, is more than just opening malicious email attachments. So the, the Tesla case, although it is just ransomware, 
uh, is is an interesting one to look at, and it's an interesting one to to review in terms of how would your organisation have have dealt with this. And if you're um, confident, then how do you test your response? If you think on paper you've got everything in place to minimise the impact of an attack like this, um, how do you, how do you test that? Um, so that could be like I mentioned earlier, something like an assumed breach exercise. It's an interesting one to think of. But what else is new? What else is happening in in the headlines? Um, well, let's talk a little bit about uh, vulnerability disclosure and bug hunting. As there was a critical Slack bug this weekend, disclosed on Friday, I think. So over the weekend, some people have been tracking this. You might not have, have seen this yet if you haven't been following the Slack news. But the bug itself is quite interesting. Uh, and also the aspects around uh, bug hunting, vulnerability disclosure, and the payout are interesting as well. So it's one one worth um, checking out. Um, it's critical vulnerability in, in Slack, which allowed for remote code execution. The bug itself is quite interesting and it involves uh, bypassing security protections that block tags, which is iframes, applets, script tags. But the bug hunter was able to, uh, to find a tag that, that could bypass that. They used uh, area or map tags. So there's some interesting thing from the point of view of uh, penetration testers and bug hunters who want to look at this report as an example of a, a to be honest, quite good uh, vulnerability disclosure report from the from the technical side of things. It's also interesting from those that are just looking at the, the kind of uh, ecosystem for bug hunting, the ecosystem for vulnerability disclosure at the moment. Because one of the interesting things about this was this is a critical vulnerability from all code execution. Uh, in a very popular application, Slack is is very well used, but the bug payout was only $1,750, which certainly caught a lot of people's attention. I actually saw this originally on, on Twitter, not because the bug was interesting, which it was, but because people were, were talking about how, in their opinion, the payout was a lot lower than that bug was worth. So this brings you into the, the whole area of of working out how much is a bug worth. And for organizations that run bug bounties or are considering bug bounties, um, effectively, how do you um, handle these things? The, the idea of a, of a bug bounty is to incentivize researchers to find vulnerabilities, to spend time writing good bug reports, such that uh, the, the the team can, can triage the vulnerability, can find the vulnerability and can remediate it. And, and to uh, encourage bug hunters to do that, very often it's, it's a monetary value that we tie to that. Now, if you read the, the bounty page for Slack, it states that the maximum payout for a critical bug is uh, $1,500. Some companies give a little bonus if the bug hunter went over and above, such as writing a really good report, that kind of thing. Um, but those payouts uh, are maybe a little bit less than some people would expect. And this is interesting because working out what is the value of a bug can be quite a difficult thing. For an organization to set up a bug bounty scheme in such a way that bugs are paid for appropriately can be can be quite challenging. There's a lot of um, process around that and making sure that bugs not only paid appropriately, but are triaged correctly, triaged quickly, handled in the right way, that kind of thing. Um, bug banks can draw a lot of negative press in this way. I mean, on one way of reviewing what has happened here is Slack ran a bug bounty program. A critical vulnerability was found. It was reported to the company and therefore they can fix the vulnerability. That's um, a a good thing, right? That's the that's the point of bug bounties. But in this particular case, a lot of negative press around the specifics of the power. And there's some people um, are thinking that this is possibly going to discourage other bug hunters from, from putting in this level of effort, from spending so much time 
uh, finding these these difficult bugs, bypassing these security protections, writing good quality um, bug reports, because it's either not worth the effort in some people's view, or they can get paid more money elsewhere. And getting paid more money elsewhere, I think some people who've maybe not looked into vulnerability disclosure and uh, brokerage services might think that it's either you give the money to the vendor or you go uh, black market, right? You, you go and, and you find some criminals who are interested in this kind of vulnerability and then you give it to them. That isn't necessarily the case. Now, the specifics differ greatly depending on what software is vulnerable, to what degree it's vulnerable, uh, that kind of thing. But the, there are vulnerability brokers out there that will buy vulnerabilities in other companies' software. And this was something that, that came up on Twitter, of course, one of those um, organizations tweeting saying, if that bug had been reported to them instead of Slack, they'd have paid $10,000. The response there being funny is some people saying, well, even $10,000 wouldn't have been enough. And some people being confused by that, saying, can you really buy and sell vulnerabilities in other organizations' software and that kind of thing. I won't get into the, the depths of uh, vulnerability brokering in, in this episode. I think that deserves a, an episode to itself where we look into the details there. But there are several companies that operate in this space. Zerodium, Zero Day Initiative, iDefense, uh, Security, SSD. There are organizations out there that um, buy vulnerabilities in other organizations' software. And it's, it's something to be aware of. Uh, not necessarily just because it's interesting, but if, if you're an organization running a bug bounty program, you, you really should understand the whole ecosystem. It, it's not just a case of, you know, putting a page on your, your website that says, hey, we have a bug bounty program, you know, um, report vulnerabilities to us. And, and that's that. Making sure the processes are good, the triage is good, it's fast, uh, and that you're paying appropriate bounties so that you are encouraging bug hunters to submit bugs. Th- there's a lot of details to it. I think this Slack vulnerability is just a good example of, of that. So that's this month in review. Those are my uh, couple of stories aside from the ransomware stuff that happens each month that I figured uh, were worth mentioning. Um, let me know over social media, though, what you think about the the Slack bug. Not necessarily the, the bug details. I, I personally think it's a, it's a good example of, of uh, a cool vulnerability, but... Um, what, what are organizations' feelings in regards to, to bug bounties at the moment? And, and how do you feel uh, they fit within the wider vulnerability disclosure and security testing ecosystem? Do you think that the Slack payout was high enough? Do you think that, you know, they, they should have paid a little bit more for that or should have uh, gone outside of their standard policy for, for such a uh, high impact, potentially high impact um, vulnerability? Let us know over social media. We'll certainly be uh, interested to, hit, to hear your thoughts. And thank you for listening. I will see you in the next podcast.